welcome to this part of our worship. Uh, we want to greet each of you in the name of Christ this morning. How many of you have enjoyed Romans? I suppose by now most of you understand why I love Romans. I, it's, if I had one book of the Bible, it would be Romans. If That's what I would choose. And as a pastor this morning, I, I confess to moments and with selfishness as, as I spend uh, nice days sitting in my study because I do enjoy working with my hands. I, there's times I lament those moments. And yet, uh, early Saturday mornings, I uh, walked through our yard over to mom and dad's house to assist mom. Uh, I can really say that I was, I was blessed to be able to think about the time I would get to spend with God. I, it was something I was looking forward to and uh, I longed for. And uh, also I want to publicly thank James today. Uh, James volunteered to share the message. And uh, being as I had the message at Faith Mission, but I just declined because I, I just felt I needed some time with God. And... Uh, kind of feel sorry for those of you who don't get to spend those hours with God. Well, today we come to another very relevant part of the Christian life, and it's our relationship with government. And uh, we live in a day when we see all kinds of responses, Christians responding and, and uh, reactions to government. We see those who are out protesting uh, uh, you're shouting for their, their rights to those on the opposite side of the spectrum who kind of stick their head in the sand and think the rapture is the answer to any questions concerning government. So, uh, but I want to begin by putting some scenarios in front of you. Imagine living in the Reformation period and where government or, the, or the, those in control banned the Bible. It was against the law, and someone brings to you a Bible. Would you accept it, or would you follow the law? Spring forward another 200 years, you've come to the colonies of the states, and there's a, there's a rebellion starting against Britain. You're a Christian. Do you join the rebellion? Or do you follow the law? Spring forward another hundred years. You live in the South, and it's against the law to assist runaway slaves. You're a Christian. A slave comes to your house one evening. Do you follow the law and turn him in, or do you assist him? Move on to our present day. As a business owner, you're required to provide insurance coverage, which includes coverage for abortion. Do you follow the law, federal law, or do you protest? You're a bakery owner. And among the things you bake are wedding cakes. And one day, two men come to your bakery and request a wedding cake for their wedding. Do you follow the state and federal laws and bake the cake 
or do you refuse? You might be thinking we're playing pretend this morning, but some of these things have actually happened, and certainly all of those are plausible. And uh, so as Christians, non-involvement is clearly not an option. Uh, and then add to all of this the many voices concerning our involvement as Christians in government. Uh, there are those who teach the passage that I'm going to be teaching today, who teach it that this only applies if government is godly. If government is ungodly, this does not apply. So to help you understand this passage, I want to bring you back to the kind of the context that God has placed. I, I'm, I'm a... I'm a kind of fanatic that God places Scripture into, into certain orders because he has a reason for us to understand why he has placed it in that order. He wants us to grasp it. So I want to give you the context. Throughout our journey in Romans, we've not only met a holy God, but we've met a personal God. A personal God who has revealed Jesus Christ to you, and upon your faith and confession, you've been enter into the justification or the right standing before this holy God. He's given you a right standing, but he doesn't stop there. He personally has baptized you with the Spirit of God or given you his Spirit. And uh, that you might have a relationship with this personal God. So you're equipped but now that you have a relationship with this holy God and that you are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, this, uh, this, this citizenship you have affects all relationships. It affects your relationship with other brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. It affects your relationship with unbelievers. And it affects your relationship with government. In chapter 12, of, of, of Romans chapter 12, God calls us to be a living sacrifice, to, to be vigilant of the age that we live in, or the world, that it doesn't shape us and mold us. God calls us to renovate or remodel how we think or process life. And that's only possible... Through the word of God and the spirit of God. If you don't spend any time in God's word and with God, you will be conformed to this world. You might go to church, you might be baptized, you might have a membership, but your values will be the same as those of the world. The media you take in will be the same and your language will be the same. God calls us to living out our life on an altar. And you can tell if someone is living on that altar. There's two, there's two things you're going to find in people who understand it. One is humility. The second is a desire to serve. You, 
You see, with pride, life is all about you. It's not about others. You see, humility and a sacrificial life are the platform upon which real ministry takes place. It's why people get built up in this church. People desire to serve, desire to give. They're humble. They're teachable. Uh, that's how people are edified. Uh, that's how it's edified. Uh, people, believers are edified. Now, it's no accident that God mentions humility twice in the passage of Romans 12. He mentions it in verse 3 and again in verse 16. The reason that humility is so important is that it keeps us teachable. We are, when we are, when you humble yourself, you are placing yourself in a position that you get, you can learn something from God. But we see, when we have pride, whether it be an inner pride or an, an overt pride, where we are, uh, inner pride where we just kind of take our own way in life, and an overt pride where we're just haughty. We keep on making the same dumb, foolish choices over and over again. We don't learn. See, without humility, you will never make the right choice in difficult situations. The choice that pleases God, you're never going to feed your enemy when he's hungry. You know what's going to happen? If you have pride, you're going to rejoice when that guy is hungry. He's finally got what he's got, had it coming. You're not going to feed him. Neither are you going to return good for evil. You're not going to do it. See, these things that God is setting from in front of us have to come from a surrendered life and the Spirit of and and a uh, 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 a real relation, deep relationship with God. These things are not going to come for their natural man. They will not, for those who are lukewarm in the Christian life, it's not going to happen. Now, I want to, so it takes a surrendered heart. Now, God asks us to consider our relationship with government. If you stop and consider the governments of this world, including our own, you will be hard-pressed to name for me one government where there is no corruption, deceit, or where citizens, especially Christians, don't occasionally get taken advantage of. It just happens. But I want, you, I want to stop for a moment and consider the United States of America with the country that you and I are living in. Uh, you know, I, I just want to be very clear that I appreciate more than ever the, the the civil liberties or the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. I mean, as I get older and I see some of these things uh, starting to go the other way, it, it makes me cringe at times. But I, I appreciate the country that I've been born into. I, I'm, I thank God that I'm, I'm, I've been raised, I've been born in this time in this country. But as I studied... I realized how much I have personally been conformed by the world. How skewed my worldview is. So I'm going to set some very thought-provoking statements in front of you this morning. And uh, first is simply this. We are not a Christian nation. 
Even our beginning was a violation of scripture. We began with rebellion. Yes, it's true. God has chosen to bless us in spite of it. And there were, certainly were Christians involved. We can look at the, our founding documents. There certainly we see the principles that come from uh, Scripture. But if you're still stuck on this being a Christian nation, consider these statements. Even the absolute best human government does not participate with or is ever a part of the kingdom of God. Here's another. The mission of the church is not to change society. That one really threw me. Yeah, it's true. These, these came from an article that I came across. And uh, I want to share it with you. It's a little lengthy. I kind of struggle with the length of it. But it is, this guy just nails it. And I want to put it in front of you this morning. I want you to, I, if I had more time, I'd have put it on the PowerPoint. But I want to share it with you so you understand kind of where I'm coming from. Um, it's just good. Believing that the end sometimes justifies the means, many evangelicals contend that nonviolent civil disobedience is justified when a cause such as opposition to abortion, is clearly biblical. Some evangelicals even refuse to pay taxes as part of the money will be used for causes and activities that are unjust and immoral. Many evangelicals believe that Christians should become active in political causes, relying on social action and pressure tactics to change laws and government policies and practices that are plainly evil to protect our cherished rights that are being encroached upon. In the name of such concepts as co-belligerency, some evangel evangelicals are even joining forces with individuals and organizations that are unchristian, heret heretical, and even cultic. The reasoning is that it is sometimes permissible to join forces with one evil in order to combat what is considered a greater evil. The zeal, this zeal for preservation of the Christian faith, both culturally and individually, often gets blended in with strong views about economics, taxation, social issues, and partisanship, so that the Bible gets wrapped in the flag. By the way, this is not written by a Mennonite, in case you think I'm, that's what I'm promoting. Even social and political activities that are perfectly worthwhile can deplete the amount of a believer's time, energy, and money that is available for the central work of the gospel. The focus is shifting away from the call to build the spiritual kingdom through the gospel to efforts to moralize culture, trying to change society from the outside rather than individuals from the inside. When a church is politicized, even in support of good causes, its spiritual power is vitiated and its moral fluence is diluted. 
when such causes are supported in worldly ways and by worldly means, the tragedy is compounded. We are to be the conscience of the nation through faithful preaching and godly living and, and confronting it not with political pressure from man's wisdom, including our own, but with the spiritual power of God's word. Using legislation, adjudication, or intimidation to achieve a superficial temporal Christian morality is not our calling. And it has no eternal value. In a message delivered at Oxford University in 1898, the British theologian Robert L. Otley observed, The Old Testament may be studied as an instructor of, right, of social righteousness. It exhibits the moral gov go government of God as attested to in the dealings with the nations rather than with individuals. And it was their consciousness of the action and the presence of God in history that made the prophets preachers, not merely to their countrymen, but to the world at large. There is indeed significance in the fact that in spite of their ardent zeal for social reform, they did not, as a rule, take part in political life or demand political reforms. Here's why. They desired not better institutions, but better men. Some evangelical pastors and other Christian leaders have turned from emphasizing the gospel to emphasizing politics. From emphasizing the word of God to emphasizing coalitions to impact culture. Some Christians expect the government not only to be the church's alley, but its primary partner. But the state is temporal and affects only things that are temporal. It is, is, it is a foolish and wasteful stewardship that devotes a great deal of time trying to bring people better morality, which is at best transient. But little time bringing the gospel, which offers eternal life. It really does not matter whether people go to hell as policemen or prostitutes. Judges or criminals, pro-life or pro-abortion. The moral will persist with the immoral. Our task is the proclamation of the gospel. Neglecting it is the spiritual equivalent of a skilled heart surgeon abandoning his profession to become a makeup artist, spending his time making people look better rather than saving lives. The mission of the church is not to change society, although that is often a beneficial byproduct of our faithful ministry and living, but to worship and serve the Lord and to bring others to a saving faith in him. Much like liberal Christians at the turn of the century, many evangelicals have lost their focus on eternal values and have become enamored with temporal issues creating what amounts to a political conservative version of social Christianity. Also, like liberals, we preach only a social message. Evangelicals who em emphasize social concerns above spiritual ones look more and more to government as a temporal earthly ally or enemy. 
But even, get this, even the absolute best human government did not participate in the work of the kingdom. And notice what he says, and the worst of human society systems cannot hinder the power of the word and the spirit and the spirit of God. God instituted civil authority for an entirely different temporal and transient purpose. We should be grateful to God for civil liberties to worship, to preach, and to teach the gospel and to live our lives almost without restriction. That is a nice privilege, but it is not necessary for the effectiveness of our gospel or spiritual growth. We should also be grateful for and within reason take advantage of the many legal and effective recourses to change bad laws and bad governments and for promoting good ones. But that has nothing to do with the Christian's priority of proclaiming the gospel and living a holy life to demonstrate that God is a saving God. Isn't that good? It, it really changed my perspective or gave me a different balance uh, realizing that it is true. So often we think about taking part in causes which only affect the externals. God is about changing the heart of things. So with that in mind, let's look at the passage Romans 13, verse 1. He begins with imperative. It's a, it's a command. He says, let every soul be subject or to be under, higher the, under unto the higher powers. Notice, notice that God does not put conditions on those higher powers. He doesn't say be subject if it's a godly government. He doesn't say uh, be subject to this government if it's Republicans that are in the White House. There's no qualifications. Or be subject to the government if they're not corrupt. God puts no conditions on those higher powers. And that's hard, that's, that's hard for us to swallow. I like, man. But he doesn't. You know, and again, I just come back. There's some things that you and I, we can fake in the Christian life. But when, for us to bow before someone who is ungodly, it takes a different nature in here. It takes a, it takes a renewed, a re, it takes a regenerated heart. It really does. One theologian wrote, Christians who have taken to marching, protesting, and shouting might do well to observe the author when he was mistreated and imprisoned. Think, speaking of Paul, when Paul, was, when Paul was put into prison, he did what? First, he prayed while he was in prison. Second, he praised God. Thirdly, he took, after he was released miraculously, he took counsel from others. And fourth, he went right back to preaching the gospel. Now, next God gives us seven reasons why we are to subject or to be under 
government. The first reason, first reason is that it was resistant to government is rebellion against God. Uh, let's back up. First reason is that government is by divine decree. Notice what it says, the latter part of verse, verse 1. There is no power but of God. The powers that are be are ordained of God. No human government ever has or ever will exist apart from the power of God. Get that. The only reason they are in power is because of God. David says all power belongs unto God. God is the source of power, and the only reason those people are in power is because God has given it to them. So, the second reason we are to be the second reason we are to be subject to government is the logical conclusion of the first is that whoever resists this power is in rebellion against God. Because the government is an institution of God to rebel it is to rebel against it is to rebel against God. Now the book of Numbers contains a great illustration of what God thinks about rebellion. In Numbers, Moses was not only cho chosen to be the lawgiver, he was chosen to be the leader. And Korah and 250 others chose to rebel against him. They, said he, they made some false accusations. And God literally opened the earth and they living were cast into, into, into the pit. That's what God thinks about rebellion. Thirdly, to resist, those who resist government will be punished. Notice what it says, they shall, they shall receive unto themselves damnation, meaning condemnation, or we could say there are consequences when you resist government. The idea is, a, is concerning the consequences now, is, is the focus. Um, and that's because you'll see in the next verse, that's the context. Um, there are, there are consequences when you break the laws of civil government. If you do 50 in a 35, expect to be ticketed. Someone has said the last part of us that gets saved is our right foot. <laughs> you see, without the consequences, there would be anarchy. If there were no consequences. Um, fourth, government serves to restrain evil. Notice what it says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Govern God supports law and order, and he uses government to preserve law and order. Even if certain laws violate 
the truths and the principle of God's word. He still is using them to preserve order. A great example is the current, the current administration we have. They certainly are very corrupt, but it doesn't matter. God is still using them. He's, he's, he's given them that power, and he's still using them to keep order in this country. And you need to, you need to be under it. Fifth, governments serve to promote good. The latter part of verse 3 says, Wilt thou not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. For the most part, those who are law-abiding and peaceful will be treated favorably by government. For the most part. We know there's exceptions. I would like to thank our youth for their involvement in local government. The, the appreciation banquet, the Christmas ba banquet. It's, 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 it's good because it fosters respect on both sides. It helps our youth see that police officers are not pigs. They're individuals who deserve respect because they have, they have been given authority by God, power. And it helps the officers to see that not all, in, in, in the midst of a lot of, of civil disobedience by youth, it helps officers see that not, that, that not every youth is disrespectful, that some respect authority. It fosters respect on both sides. Robert Haldane, a 19th century evangelist, calls the institution of civil government a dispensation of mercy. He says, without it, we would be better off living with the beasts in the forest than in society because of the, the anarchy that would take, take place. You see, when, when civil government is removed, the real nature of man gets revealed. Uh, uh, a great example of that is when Israel was without a king, the people did what was right in, the, in their own sight. And it was not good. The sixth reason we are to be Subject to government is that government is empowered by God to inflict punishment upon the disobedient. And that includes capital punishment. Look at what it says. For if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he that beareth not the sword in for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. See, when Paul stood before the, the Roman governor Festus and made his appeal to Caesar, he said, If I that be a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. Do you realize that he was acknowledging government's right to capital punishment. 
It's noteworthy that in Israel, the ancient Israel, there were no prisons. Wrongdoers or violators were either executed or they were busy making restitution for their wrong. In fact, only pagans had prisons. Europe had many prisons for hundreds of centuries, but we had no prisons in the United States until the, 18th, the late 18th century. And you know who they were introduced by? Quakers. Quakers thought that imprisonment would be more humane than capital punishment. And now we have the dual distinction of having the most people incarcerated per capita and the highest crime rate as well. There's two things that are wrong with our current system. First of all, evil is no longer punished, and if it is, it's not swift. Secondly, violators are never required to pay restitution. And you know what the big problem with that is? They never regain their dignity, and they are never integrated back into society. Prisons become nothing more than government-sponsored schools of crime. Our government is not only guilty of not using capital punishment for those who clearly deserve it, but it is equally guilty for murdering the millions and millions of unborn children. And God's answer surely will be judgment. Now, the last reason we are to be subject to government is for conscience sake. We do it for the sake of having a clear conscience before God. Uh, if you don't believe that a guilty conscience uh, can, can wear you out, look at the Psalms 32. This is David. He was living a double life. He was guilty of not only adultery but murder. And notice what he writes there in Psalms 32. He was a hypocrite. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. And for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, and my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. It just drained him. His soul was parched. Reminded me of a letter that someone sent to the IRS. That it, was, it was in the, in the letter said, I, I cheated on my income tax last year and haven't been able to sleep since. Closed in some cash. If I have trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> Give the guy some credit. He's halfway there. Civil disobedience, civil obedience keeps our conscience clear and sensitive. Verses 6 and 7 is the outworking of that it says for this cause because we want that clear conscience pay ye tribute or tax also for they are they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing render therefore all all their dues tribute 
to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. We are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, tax evasion is sin, but the other side of it, being ignorant and uninformed and paying too much tax, is equally sinful. Because you are a poor steward of what God has entrusted you. If you don't take advantage of the, of the, the uh, credits, deductions that, that the government has lawfully given you, you are being a poor steward. So somewhere between <laughs> these two banks is right. And may God, give, may God <laughs> and a good tax accountant help you find that right, all right? Are there ever grounds for civil disobedience? The answer is yes. Acts chapter 5. It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the God. It was Peter and the apostles. And the high priest asked them, Do, did, we, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach this name? They teach Christ. Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and, that, and intend to bring this man's blood upon on us. And notice the response of Peter. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. There are certainly instances, they're certainly clear that God, our obedience to God supersedes our obedience to government. Um, and government forbids the preaching of Christ, we disobey government. And when government commands us to do evil, we disobey government. Now let me conclude with two statements. We are to obey God always. And we are to obey government unless it conflicts with our obedience to Christ. As a general rule, a good Christian is a law-abiding citizen who pays his taxes. That's very simple. I want to conclude with Mark chapter 12. And it says, they sent unto him, meaning G certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, to catch him in his words. They were talking about Jesus. And when they had come, they said unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and cursed for no man, for thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me hither a penny, that I may see it. And when they had brought it, they said unto him, Whose image is, Who is the, this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus said unto them, Render unto Caesar 
the things which are Caesar's. There are some things of our lives that are Caesar's. And we are to render that to Caesar. And, the th and to God, the things which are God, there are things in our life that are God, only belong to God. And we are to render that to God. Don't you love that balance? Jesus had amazing balance in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning, this, this uh, moment. Lord, I just want to thank you for the clarity in the midst of so many voices of this world and society, the clarity you bring with your word. It surely is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. It, it, the grays become light. And, uh, Lord, thank you for the time with you. And, and uh, we would just pray that each of us might take to heart uh, the things that you have placed in front of us and that we might walk worthy of your calling. But, Lord, but Lord especially help us to be about the sharing of the gospel, our, our calling, that is our to go forth and wherever we are to share the gospel. Lord, help us to use our time wisely. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.